Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. If we analogize our nation's education curriculum to, say, a map of the United States, then right now, STEM subjects are New York City, and civics and history, they're the Everglades, a swampy wasteland where danger lurks at every corner. This is, to put it mildly, unfortunate. When we don't understand American history, when we lack knowledge of why our systems of governance are the way they are, when we fail to learn how to productively engage in our communities, well, well, that just leads to yelling and riots and defacing statues and a lot of mistrust. Fortunately, there is a terrific crop of organizations, new and old, making a strong push to bring civics and American history back into the spotlight. These efforts take a variety of tactics, from training teachers to advocating to elected officials, or from engaging parents or going straight to the students. One of those efforts that is aimed at helping parents in particular to take the reins of their kids' civic education is a new project from the Fulner Center at the Heritage Foundation called Level Up Civics. I had the privilege of playing MC to the project's first National Civics Expo back in October. There, 14 nonprofits spoke directly to the parents and grandparents out there with these three-minute pitches on the programs, the contests, the materials that they have available to, well, level up the civic and historical knowledge of these kids. You can watch the expo at levelupcivics.org. Scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page, you'll find it there. All the presentations were terrific, but three groups were selected by a panel of experts as offering the most compelling projects. And so it's those three groups, the American Civics and History Initiative, Generation Joshua, and Constituting America, that we're going to hear from today. If you've been worried about the direction of civics education, then buckle up, because we're going to go on a fast ride of encouragement. So let's get started. We want for kids to not just understand civics, but to be active participants in civic life. That might mean running for office one day, but more likely it means doing the basics of civics, things like voting or staying tuned into the actions of local election boards, speaking out on important issues, maybe just understanding and fighting for our constitutional rights here and there. Generation Joshua aims to do just that, helping to inspire and equip high school students to be an active part of their communities. Jeremiah Lorig is the deputy director of Generation Joshua and a passionate spokesman for the cause. Jeremiah, Uh, let's start with the big picture of your work. You're molding these model citizens, so how do you do it? Well, thank you, Peter. It's really good to be here. The, The basic principle of Generation Joshua is that we need to pass the torch of leadership to the next generation. And, of course, a lot of people, when they think of leadership, they think of, of George Washington or Alexander the Great or, you know, these, these famous names. But oftentimes in a democracy like we have in the United States, citizens 
are the leaders. Our constitution starts with we the people. And so Generation Joshua is formed around the idea that we the people need to pass the torch of leadership from one generation to the next again and again. And so we do that by teaching high schoolers the value of citizenship what it means and how they can exercise it. And so we teach them using hands-on programs. We have classes. We have all kinds of different ways to do it. But the core of it is to get down to what is your citizenship and why is it valuable and what can you do with that citizenship, that gift of citizenship, once you've got it. You know, I don't know, a lot of your programs are centered around high school. Do you have middle school programs as well, or is it just high? So uh, middle school students can participate in some of our programs, but the core of what our program is designed to reach are the students between 14 and 19 years old. Got it. And then last time we talked, you mentioned a new program you had for those college-bound students, the ones kind of graduating out of those programs, what you call the Leadership Academy. Tell us about that. That seems like a neat thing. Yeah, so we've been using our vol- uh, our Generation Joshua alum who are college students as our leadership core for the last several years helping as volunteers at camps and on campaigns and different things like that. But our new program, the Generation Joshua Leadership Academy, is a gap year program where young people kind of between college and high high school can step out and they can get experience in leadership. I like to say leadership is like a muscle. It grows when you use it. So they come and they, they join our team here at the Generation Joshua headquarters right outside of Washington, D.C., and they travel with us to run these programs all around the country. They help us by growing their leadership, by leading teams of high schoolers as they engage in civic activity. It's, it's a great way for them to grow and learn and practice their leadership. That's really interesting. Is that a paid program? I mean, are they, they getting... it's it's not paid, but they do have a stipend that helps cover some of their expenses, and we pay, of course, for their travel and all that kind of stuff. And also, a part of the program includes like they they're they're in a Generation Joshua leader uh, leadership program, so they're being mentored by our staff. They're also doing reading and taking classes, uh, talking about what it means to be citizens, how, how to engage their, uh, their philosophy, and kind of get into those core ideas of uh, what the value of their citizenship is. That's so interesting. There aren't really a lot of gap year programs out there. I mean, there's you, you have your Peace Corps and those types of things. So even those aren't really geared towards that age group. So it's, do you find, are, is there a lot of competition for that out there? It's brand new, so I can't even tell you what the competition is. We literally launched it, uh, our last full year was this last year, and we had five students who, uh, you know, hearing about it said, actually, that's a good fit for me, and so they dropped everything. They they put their college on pause and, and came out and volunteered, and it was a phenomenal year. And now, actually, all of them are either in fields that they wanted to go into, are continuing their education, or uh, one of them came back for a year two. So, pretty exciting. Now, Generation Joshua is a program that's couched under a broader organization, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which may catch some people off guard. I know it did for one of our recent grantees for you. Uh, So what does that mean for Generation Joshua? Does that mean it's really targeted at homeschoolers? No. So what it was, was it was a vision of our founder, who was the founder of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, when he realized that we needed to do a better job as a nation 
to equip young people to be active and engaged citizens. And so uh, he wanted to launch the program. And so our primary audience for the first 10 years or so was homeschoolers. Like it was, it, uh, that's, that's largely the, the world that we lived in. But uh, we've been making uh, direct and active efforts to reach out. And so we've been teaching public school, private school, um, charter schools, uh, homeschools, of course, and we, uh, we go to wherever we're invited. And so we just did some public, uh, public school activity in Loudoun County, which is kind of in the headlines right now. Um, but, uh, we, we have a very good reputation there and we were able to continue that. Uh, we've done some charter school, um, programs in the last uh, month and a half or so. And of course we continue our, our, um, homeschool outreach as a regular part of what we do. You know, there's a lot of programs out there that are working with kids, working with high school students, trying to teach them civics. And, you know, I I think my sense is that you guys are offering some really great programs, some really immersive programs. Uh, How sustained is that effect, though? I I would love it if maybe if you have a story or something to help us understand whether these programs are actually creating that lasting change in the kids that you want to see, that we want all want to see in our rising citizens. Yeah, so I I was just um, actually this a week ago, I was out in New Mexico working with Navajo kids off the reservation. I uh, went to volunteer at a camp down there. And that camp was founded by three generation Joshua siblings who are alum and graduated from the program and wanted to continue to be active and engage the world. And so they created a nonprofit organization and ministry to reach out to Navajo kids and they wanted to provide them with a a spot of joy in their holiday season. So a lot of them are back from their uh, boarding schools and it's over the holidays and New Year's is right there. So they wanted to do a soccer camp for these these kids. And so uh, they they continue to practice what they learned in Generation Joshua because they came to our summer camps and now they're running a winter camp for these Navajo kids. Another uh, more political example is a story about a kid named Tim. He's not a kid anymore, but I still think of him as a kid. Uh, But he uh, was doing one of our programs and in the program he got points for writing letter to the editor. So he wrote a letter to the editor and he had to do like three of them. So he did it again and again. Well, a local... Uh, a community activist saw those letters and reached out to him and said, hey, Tim, would you be willing to come and volunteer on this uh, political campaign? So it started by him writing letters to the editor, just trying to com- engage his community w- w- about some important ideas and things that he thought w- needed to change. And then he got sucked into there and started volunteering on campaigns and then uh, started working as a volunteer fire uh, fighter and things like that. And then um, after a few years of doing all that, one of the women that he was campaigning for this whole time said, hey, I'm going to now run for a higher office. Would you be willing to step in and run for state legislature? And so to this day, he is the youngest elected uh, legislature in the state of Indiana. And so he has continued to carry the torch of his citizenship 
as we pass it from generation one generation to the next. And that's just a couple couple examples. It's nice to hear those stories. And one of the things I always like to do with this podcast is not just get donors excited about giving to organizations, but also remind them that there are reasons to be optimistic out there. Yeah. And those are those are some good stories about. And that's we what. Sorry to interrupt, but that's what I love about working with these high schoolers is it gives me unbounded optimism in our future because I see these young people who want to step up, who want to make a difference, who want to be engaged, and they are relentless. Whether it's uh, there was a club, a Generation Joshua Club in Colorado, there was a bunch of tornadoes that ripped through their community, and they said, what can we do? They didn't just sit back and say, oh, look at how horrible this is. They said, what can we do? And they got one of their uh, dads had a, um, a construction company. They got his truck and they went straight to the affected area. They were there before any government uh, vehicles were in the community and cleaning up, picking up the pieces of, of the neighborhood, making a difference. We have kids who uh, volunteer at soup kitchens, uh, kids who host candidate debates, uh, in, uh, for for even statewide candidates, like the, the, these kids are incredible because they're willing to look at the the mess around them and say, "What can I do?" And then they become a little source of light in the craziness of their community, and and people notice it, and it, and it really does make a difference. That's how we get to a better place. Jeremiah Lorig, uh, I love what you and Generation Joshua are doing. Thanks. Thank you. You may have noticed that kids like videos, they like songs, interactive content, social media. They're responsive to all these media. They engage with it. And they also like winning stuff. So one group has figured out how to tie all of that together in a way that makes learning about and participating with American history and civics fun. Constituting America was started by Janine Turner in 2010, and Janine and Kathy Gillespie serve as co-presidents. Janine Turner may be better known to some of you as the leading lady in the long-running show Northern Exposure or starring alongside Sylvester Stallone in Cliffhanger. Today, though, she is a tireless advocate for our American principles. So let's start there, Janine. What prompted you to make such a massive shift in your energy from acting in Hollywood to getting kids excited about the Constitution? Hi, Peter. Well, great to be with you today. It's been 12 years. It'll be 12 years in February since we since I founded and Kathy and I have been propelling this foundation forward for 12 years. It's amazing to think it's been 12 years and we're doing a study this year. We do a 90 day study with scholars every, every year. And um, it, this year it's going to be about American exceptionalism and proving American exceptionalism. And because people throw that word around, well, what does that really mean? And as I have fleshed out this study, which is going to cover all of history from the Romans to the Greeks um, how, how our founding fathers studied that we wouldn't emulate their failures to um, all the way through how, look, we, we didn't fall like France to, to, to dictator like Napoleon. And we didn't fall to, to a dictatorship like not, you know, Hitler in World War II. We didn't fall to um, communism like in China with Mao or Stalin. So it's going to be a great study. And what's it going to be about? It's, it's, it's going to be about our founding documents and our founding fathers and how prescient they were and how what they put forth for us truly has with the checks and balances, it truly, truly has kept us free, um, a free people. And um, 
and good-hearted where, where we're accountable to one another, whether it's to one another or states to states or states to country and country to state, or, you know, federal government to, to states. Um, and I think in that respect, we're exceptional. And, and I, I felt that the school systems, to answer your question directly, were not having the time per se or the desire to really focus on this. So we launched the foundation so that there could be a, a real, uh, you know, kids, kids can't, re without the ability to reason, what are we teaching? Um, we're, we're handicapping the children if we just force feed them one particular point of view. So having two points of view, if they're going to teach, be determined to teach perhaps another point of view, it's really important to have the point of view in the schools that look at what our founding documents are actually doing. And the last thing I will just say very briefly is that one of the things that, that has been um, sort of our focus, a laser focus as we've moved forward with this, with this mission is to really have hands-on experiences with the kids in the classrooms where they learn how to be an active citizen. Um, how do I write a petition? What, what are my First Amendment rights? So, Because I think a lot of times we teach kids, this is what they do in Washington, D.C., and they create, we give the government too much power instead of saying, no, 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 it's, it's what we want. So I ask kids how they want to change things in their neighborhood. You're one of your big programs, I know, is your student scholarship and the contests that you have, which strike me as particularly unique and different in the way that a lot of other people are doing it, because it really pushes the student to both engage in the way you're talking about, and also to leverage the power of different media from songs to poems, to uh, PSAs, to, to regular speeches, et cetera. Tell us about how you approach that, that contest and what you're trying to do there. Yes, um, good question. We're multi-tiered. And the first one is what I was, uh, is the George Washington Speaking Initiative where we talk about the constitution, A, or we can come in and teach our other workshop, which is how to have a civil civic conversation, two really important things. And then the other tier is, is the contest and it's a scholarship contest, but they also receive a free trip to, to Washington DC where they get to, it, what, well, last year they actually um, sat down or a year before with uh, chief justice, John Roberts, who spoke with them for 45 minutes. It's, it's an amazing time that these students have. So it's a scholarship money. It's an amazing tour of Washington, DC, but also more importantly, we promote their works and because we don't hire Madison Avenue to do our ads. We, we, these students create these ads and a lot of these students that have won our contest actually stay with us and work with us and stay on our, uh, our, or stay on our youth advisory board. It's, it's really gratifying. And students from all walks of life, students from all types of different parties, it doesn't matter. They want to be a part of an organization. And I'm, I think that that's really, really a shining aspect of, of our foundation that these kids want to stay with us. Um, but the contest, we ask them to create a STEM with a quiz online, a, a, a website, an app, or create a song, or to create a public service announcement, a little commercial, 30, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, or an essay. But what we do is we promote those works. So our winning students, their songs are actually played on the radio. We have millions and millions and millions, hundreds of millions of uh, impact numbers on this. We hire a company out of Nashville that promotes their songs on the radio. So they get to hear their songs on the radio in 85 stations and millions of times plays. Um, same thing with public service announcements. We, we, we hire a company and they actually are on television. One of our winners said, mom, mom, come look, my PSA, it's on TV. So that's really one of the wonderful things that we do that I don't think any other organization does. They can say, hey, write an essay or 
create something, but we actually promote their works. And as an artist, as a, as a 15 year old, who was in New York city modeling at the age of 15. So I was modeling professionally at age 12 and 13. But if I, someone had come in to my classroom and said, if you create a PSA, you're going to have a celebrity judge. You're going to have someone like Gary Sinise or John Rich, you know, Gary Sinise acting for PSAs or John Rich, listen to your song or Vince Gill. Uh, and then we're going to actually air it on the radio television. I would have just been jumping up and down. I would have been thrilled because not only could I potentially win a scholarship and win the contest, but I would have national exposure. And, uh, and so that's what's unique about our contest. Well, and so many young people say they don't want to be astronauts or teachers anymore, right? They want to be uh, influencers. So if they're going to be an influencer, <laughs> they might as well be an influencer for, for good American civic principles. Right? Well said. If, and that's one of the reasons Kathy, Kathy wanted to, to be a partner in this, this venture of ours is because if you can't affect the culture, unfortunately, it's a, you know, it's a, yeah, the culture is a big machine now. And it's not just scholarships. It's not just contests. You actually are putting out different educational resources and things. What What are some of those items that are out there that may be a little bit more traditional, if you will? I love the way you break this down. Um, well, as, as we said, we have the George Washington Speak Initiative where we go into the classrooms. I've given over 600 speeches uh, to the students. It's uh, a really interactive Socratic method. I love communicating with these students. We have the contest, but also we have our 90-day study. Um, and as I mentioned, we have the one this year that's going to be on approving American exceptionalism. Why are we exceptional? This is what the, this is, these are what the documents. This, this will be out, at, we'll start this in April. I believe on the day we're going to start on the day Paul Revere had his midnight run is the day we're starting in April, our study this year. Um, so the studies are our scholastic resources. And now we have uh, what 11 studies, um, everything from breaking down the Constitution to, to line by line by line or clause by clause. The Federalist Papers, 90 essays on the Federalist Papers, the classics that inspired our fathers, 90 essays on that. The, the executive branch, the legislative branch, the, the, the Supreme Court, you know, the, the judicial branch. We, we have these amazing resources and studies on our website. And this is also interactive in the respect that anybody that during the live study, which will, this one will be starting on in April, it actually, um, you join every day, you read an essay every day for 90 days. So it's a great sense of community to actually study together and have a kind of a scholastic academic aspect to, to, uh, to really, really, really what our founding father, fathers meant and what the founding documents mean. You know, it's clear in talking to you, you've got a lot of energy, enthusiasm around this. You know, I know you, you came up through Hollywood. You're, you weren't surrounded by a bunch of people who shared these values. We turn on the news today. Our values aren't out there. What is it that makes you so optimistic and energetic that we can actually turn the tide with, with these students you're working with? I think students really want to hear two points of view. Um, if, if students are becoming dogmatic, it's, they're becoming dogmatic because that's what we're teaching them. Um, but I, I find students are very open to hearing other points of view. I mean, reasoning is a beautiful thing. What's liberty? Liberty is the ability to reason. And if we're stripping our students out of this in our in our public schools, private schools, whatever you know, or, or even in our our academic collegiate arenas, if we're stripping them of the ability to reason, well, then we're really taking away a major aspect of liberty. Um, and I think that that uh, students really do want to hear it, and that's why our civil civic conversation is so fascinating. We teach them two different points of view on a hot topic whether it's the border or uh, climate change, whatever it may be uh, here. It, it's really fascinating to go to the classroom because if it's on climate change, you might have 
20 students say, of course, climate change, 100%. And you might have two very brave students that say, well, yeah, it might be changing, but I don't believe everything I need. And I'm not quite, you know, I don't know. I want to explore some more. Those are always very brave kids. And we have them debate and we hand out an article pro and con article where they actually have to read opposing points of view and we say all right now we're going to have a discussion what did you learn is there something you didn't know about the opposing point of view that you that's making you think now um is there anything maybe you kind of agree with about if can you find five percent where you actually agree and that creates a conversation where we're not just pointing our finger and telling people how they should think and that, my friends, is not liberty. And we can't raise rising generations in that sort of manner. So to be able to reason is really important. I think that's one of our focuses. That's great. Janine Turner with Constituting America. Love what you guys are doing and hope you guys continue to see lots of success. Oh, well, Peter, thanks for what you're doing. Keep up the great work. We've talked about the students, but what about the teachers? Our last project goes straight to them. The American Civics and History Initiative aims to prepare secondary school teachers to teach American history and our founding principles as best they can. What's great about this effort is that it is a collaboration between three of the absolute best groups out there doing work to train teachers and help teachers uh, and get them up to speed on American principles and how to teach them. Those being the Jack Miller Center, the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University, and the Bill of Rights Institute. Each of these three does fine work on its own, so the bet is that by joining forces, they can have a real impact on statewide curriculum, helping more teachers than any of them could do alone. Jonathan Greenberg is Director of Freedom Initiatives at the Jack Miller Family Foundation and helps coordinate this initiative and keep it moving forward. He's here to help us better understand it. So Jonathan, why do we need to have an effort that focuses on teachers? I mean, don't they already have plenty of training on civics? No, uh, actually they don't. Um <laughs> The, they have plenty of training in um, undergrad and, and grad school in pedagogy and theory and social emotional learning. Um, almost no teachers are what I would call content experts. And that's not just true in civics. It's true pretty much across the board. Um, the, more of them in high school are content experts than anywhere else. But uh, even there, very few are, are what I would call content experts. And what I mean by that are people who are well-versed um, in the the subject that they're teaching, who are experts in math, experts in science, and in our case, experts in civics. Um, and that's because you can get out of an undergrad education degree with almost no preparation in the subject matter that you're planning on teaching. So uh, the, there are a number of obvious problems with that. Uh, when I was a, a, a lowly seminary student, I had a favorite professor who used to tell us that the best teaching comes from deep learning, which is a line that I use often. And I think that it's really true. Uh, and so if, that, if it is true, then most of our teachers are not prepared to be great teachers. The other problem that you have is that, for example, the 1619 Project, which we're pretty much uh, by now, I think, all familiar with the project of Nicole Hannah-Jones in the New York Times to uh, fatally undermine American history and American self-confidence by placing the American founding in, in 1619 when the first slaves came to the Americas, as opposed to being in 1776. Any content expert takes one look at that conglomeration of nonsense and immediately understands that it's polemic and, and that it doesn't belong in uh, secondary education. But if you don't know uh, the details of the American founding, if you're not an expert on that subject matter, 
you might just think it's something edgy and cool and interesting and it'll 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 take your kids attention so the creation of content experts is incredibly important not just because it'll improve the overall quality of teaching but because our teachers then will recognize bad uh, pedagogy and bad theory and bad teaching when they see it there's so many aspects to american history uh, and so many parts to emphasize i mean we've been around for a little at least a little bit now is there a guiding light or a core thesis that kind of binds the approach that the three groups are taking in this effort so that they don't get down these garden paths of other ideas yeah, I think the primary thing is the just the founding principles generally uh, are the 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 guiding light uh, that that leads all of this. Uh, whether it's the the Declaration or the Constitution or the philosophies that led to those documents being written, but for me, I always go back to what Jack Miller, my boss and the uh, founder and retired CEO of Quill Corporation, the office supply company. What Jack always calls the mission statement of the United States, which is we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, and Jack calls that the mission statement of the United States. And so everything else, like the mission statement in a corporation or an organization, uh, the mission statement should be... Uh, the the fountain from which everything else flows. And I think that's certainly true both for America and for our project. So how does it work with three groups doing this? I mean, are, are they each with their own different areas of focus? I mean, some some taking a month off and the other one picking up the slack. What, <laughs> what do you, walk us through the, how this collaboration is working. No, I have to tell you, it's it's been an absolutely fantastic, you know, you would, you would expect that it's like herding cats, right? You get three organizations that essentially share the same space and you'd figure there'd be lots of uh, difficulties, but really it's been remarkable. These are three organizations that are entirely committed uh, to the work that they do. And they understand that working together is a better way to do more of what they do. Um, they've been gracious with each other uh, and with their time. We have a, a standing weekly call um, it's, it's actually branching out now and it's going to be, uh, uh, different calls every week, but to deal with programming and, you know, uh, executive and strategic decision-making and, uh, and, uh, all three organizations send representatives to this call and I kind of chair it and, and it, it, uh, so far it works beautifully and, uh, we've been able to, um, make a real difference. I think on the ground, we've, we've met the numbers that we wanted to meet. Uh, in our first state in Florida, we, uh, in terms of teacher uh, accumulating more teachers who are involved in this project, and we're branching out into other states. I know we'll talk about that in a minute. And I and it's the but more than just accomplishing the goals of the project, meaning getting more teachers to become better teachers and, and be on the path of being content experts. I always looked at the collaboration as an end in and of itself. Uh, it wasn't just a means. Um, I think that part of our problem in the liberty movement generally is that we operate in silos, that we don't operate collaboratively, and uh, that we, uh, you know, we miss a lot of opportunities by doing that. And, and I think it also confuses donors. You know, I, speaking from a donor's perspective, there are 15 different organizations that do this stuff. Why don't they all just work together? I think probably most donors have said that at one point or another. I know my boss says it all the time. And so Jack had the idea, well, why don't we get some of the people that we work most closely with to do exactly that? 
And you know what? It turns out when you do, not only does the work product improve and your reach improve, uh, but each organization is doing more of the work that they want to do and they're raising more money. So Florida is the test case for this. Talk to us a little bit more about what's going on in Florida. What is that work? What's the outcome you're trying to do? So there are about 12,000 middle and high school civics teachers in Florida. Um, And the goal at the beginning of this was to get to a place where we had reached about uh, over, we wanted to have reached over 50% of those teachers. And by reached, I mean, those are people who had come to at least one program, either uh, offered by the Jack Miller Center, the Ashbrook Center, or the Bill of Rights Institute. Um, the three organizations do work together uh, on this project, but they're still doing their own programming. Again, they're just doing more of it. And uh, in the year and a, gosh, I guess it's a year and a half now that we've been doing this, um, we, have, uh, we, we have done that. I think we are actually already over 50%. We've, we've acquired enough teachers that we're not, we've actually already hit our goal and uh, now we're just building on it. And then the next step is to, to start uh, teachers down a path of deepening uh, their experience with, uh, with the American founding and, and the principles thereof. But it's been a, I think it's been a tremendous success. And when you, when you add in the fact that we were so limited in the last you know, 18 months or so in what we could do in person, that we had to adjust our expectations from when we planned this to when we were executing it in terms of what we'd be able to accomplish in person. I think it's been a remarkable success. So we're now, uh, I think we're over 6,400, 6,500 teachers that we've reached in total. Not all of those in the last year and a half. Uh, it's just, it's a, around 1,500 teachers or so, I think in the last year and a half. But we, we've achieved our goal of being over 50%. And you know, once you get to a critical mass where you've got a relationship with most of the teachers and they've worked with you and they know you and they can vouch for you, that critical mass then can push the rest of them to participate. And the goal is to expand this out into other states over time, yes. correct? I mean, we've already a... started. We've already started. So the next three, next three states are going to be Texas, Wisconsin, and Virginia. And there are a variety of reasons why we chose those states. And, and then continuing the work in Florida, you know, taking that more than 50% of teachers and taking them from having interacted with us to deep learning, consistent learning, content expertise, that's where the challenge comes in. Getting them in the door is great, uh, but getting them in the door is only part of the, it's only the first step in the process. Now we need to take those people that we've got and, and turn them into content experts. That's awesome. Well, I think it's an important effort and I'm sure the teachers out there, even ones who may not agree with these groups in different ways, uh, probably still value it and because they want to be good teachers, right? Yeah, I don't think anybody joins a profession wanting to be bad at it. I, I think the overwhelming majority of teachers, I think, can be our allies. Um, and uh, there are some activists out there who are going to oppose w- what we're doing. But I think the overwhelming majority will take a look at what we're doing and say, this is primary source material. You know, we're not, uh, there, there's the only ideology being taught here is the ideology of, you know, John Locke, right? So there's no, there's no contemporary political ideology being taught here. The political ideology is from the 1600s. Yeah, I think there's a bias on our part in favor of the the, the innate goodness and genius of the American founding um, and the, the goodness of the American people. But, uh, you know, that's not to say that we teach a sanitized version of history. We, we don't do anything, any such thing. There are 
uh, whole sessions that we've done on slavery and uh, on the you know the decision making process that led to the inclusion of slavery in uh, uh, in the American founding and so you know there are there are sins in America's past that need to be taught about or else we can't make sure we avoid them in the future and we don't sanitize that uh, nobody should but we also place the American founding in its proper context uh, and make sure that those things are properly understood. Well, I think the bias of the folks listening to this are going to be in your favor. So Jonathan Greenberg, appreciate you telling us about this initiative and and good luck to y'all. Thanks, Peter. I've always thought that the phrase American experiment was so apt. The founders had a hypothesis that Americans empowered with the knowledge of their own freedom could lead themselves better than some all-powerful monarch. That experiment continues today, imperfectly, many learnings along the way. But for the experiment to work, we have to understand the basic parameters, such as those outlined by the American Civics and History Initiative. Then we need to make sure our future leaders both understand and can engage with these ideas, like in the ways that Generation Joshua and Constituting America are doing. And these groups aren't the only ones. So many organizations are actively working in this arena. For donors trust clients who want to find a project that's a good fit for your philanthropy, give us a call. We would be delighted to explore some of these ideas with you. You can get links to all of these organizations, as well as to the Level Up Civics National Civics Expo I referenced at the top of the show on our show notes page. Go to donorstrust.org slash podcast. You'll find all the past episodes there, as well as links to the show notes. Uh, Thank you to the growing number of you who are subscribing or signing up on our podcast page to get reminders when we release new episodes. We truly hope this podcast will help you discover new groups to match your interests and grow your philanthropy. After all, charitable giving is one of the most important ways in which we engage with our communities. So keep it up, and let's talk more soon. Thank you.